welcome to HMSC Connects, where we go behind the scenes of four Harvard museums to explore the connections between us, our big, beautiful world, and even what lies beyond. My name is Jennifer Berglund, part of the exhibits team here at the Harvard Museums of Science and Culture, and I'll be your host. Today, I'm speaking with two super interesting people. Meredith Vasta, a collection steward at the Peabody Museum of Archaeology and Ethnology, and Elizabeth James Perry, a textile artist, marine biologist, and member of the Aquina Wampanoag tribe. They recently worked together on an online exhibit called Wampanoag Voices Beyond 1620, a project that's in part a reflection on the 400th anniversary of the arrival of the Mayflower and the ensuing consequences to Native people, but more so a celebration of the vibrant Native communities of our area. Elizabeth analyzed two historical Wampanoag objects, an eel trap and a sash worn by a guy named King Philip. I wanted to ask them both about the creation of this exhibit and the relevance of these objects within Wampanoag culture today. Here they are. Elizabeth James Perry and Meredith Vasta, thank you so much for being here. Thank you. Thanks for having us. Thank you. This is great. Meredith, how did you all select these items for this online exhibit? And tell us from your perspective, what did you know about these objects before Elizabeth took over? When we started this project, we really wanted to look for items that were clearly connected to specific communities. I mean, sometimes when things come into the museum, it might just say it's from Massachusetts or New England or the Eastern Woodlands. But we were looking for items that were clearly connected to specific communities. And we do have a number of things from Mashpee and Aquina. So we knew exactly where they came from. We also had names of artists in some cases, and then we have a photograph as one of the items, and we have the names of the sitters in that photograph. And in those cases, it was really great we were able to reach out to specific descendants, to, you know, the descendants of those people who made the basket or are sitting in the photograph and get their perspectives on it. For Elizabeth, we selected the sash and the eel trap because we knew that Elizabeth was keenly interested in those and had researched them in the past. The first item that we talked about, the eel trap, that was donated to the museum in 1917. The donor was a Dr. Lombard Carter Jones, and he lived from 1865 to 1944. He lived in Falmouth, Massachusetts, and he was a graduate of Harvard University. He was also a big collector. Between the 1890s and the 1930s, Jones had donated over 800 books to the libraries at Harvard and nearly 140 images and objects to the Peabody Museum from different indigenous communities all over. Some of the items collected, you know, I wish I knew more about this. I'm not sure if he purchased them or perhaps traded for them. I wasn't sure that maybe as a doctor, if he was trading medical services for items like these, but he got these at Mashpee directly from the community members there. Unfortunately, we don't know who made this eel trap, 
but we do know that he collected it before 1892. The sash, on the other hand, about 130 years ago, in 1890, the American Antiquarian Society gifted a number of ethnological items to the Harvard Peabody, and one of them was this sash. The only documentation that came with it was this label sewn on the reverse side with old-timey handwriting that read, Belt of the Indian King Philip from Colonel Keyes. King Philip, or his name was Metacom, was a Wampanoag sachem, and he was important and involved in King Philip's War, which started in 1675. At its core, it's this conflict between natives resisting this ongoing colonization and spread of white settlers. It was a really interesting question for us, though. Is this actually King Philip's sash, or was that something that the American Antiquarian Society thought? Is that something that the Keyes family had as family history? You know, oftentimes there's tons of things. And I'm sure, Elizabeth, throughout all your museum visits, you have found a number of things attributed to King Philip that sometimes when you are a quote unquote famous Native American, you know, everything is Sitting Bulls, everything is Geronimo's, everything is King Philip's. So it was really a great question that Elizabeth and the staff at the Peabody really wanted to explore. And they did some interesting research on it that really told us a lot about the age of the sash and possibilities of where it actually came from. But I'll let Elizabeth speak to her experience with that. So the sash is interesting from a material perspective. And fortunately for me, a portion at least of early trade records where merchants were bringing goods from Europe and going to markets in places like Albany, Montreal, various points along the East Coast, were bringing their items and trading with Native people, you know, Native men, Native women at market. And so there's accounts of a certain type of red stroud blanket being produced. You can see where traders are very particularly saying they want a dark brown edge. They want a blue edge. They want a white line inside of the dark brown salvage edge. So as a weaver, all of those kind of descriptions make sense to me because I'm used to worrying about salvage edges and keeping the edges neat and straight and standard widths and and all too. Um, So you can look at the width of the cloth, the type of dyes used, the design work on it, and you can kind of narrow it down based on the communications going back and forth across the ocean to around circa 1710, I would say. Um, That specific cloth is mentioned really briefly. It's in demand, and then there's no mention of it. And I think that there's no mention of it because the trader finally got his batch of the blankets, but I think he was told it was such a hassle to try to dye it without covering that white line on the edges that it was too expensive and too risky because if the color runs, your native customers don't want it and they're going to send it right back. And That's very expensive. Hmm. So it was this experiment in, in trying to cater to native tastes in New England that's really interesting. I find it interesting this there's this combination. It's that interesting time period, 17th century, 18th century, where there's a such a strong combination of both indigenous materials and techniques and motif work and color balance, and then also an influx of some trade materials from England or France or Spain, wherever it's coming from. And so you've got these white glass beads that are new. Before then, all of the beads would be produced here of local materials, including wampum, but also bone and other ivory, other materials like that. So the appearance would be a little bit different. You have the artist 
spinning the Indian hemp, which is an indigenous plant that we use for sewing and weaving and even some soft fiber basketry, twine basketry. And it's very strong. And so you can still see that on the sash today. So that's a nice touch. The technique that was used to actually stitch down the bead is quite patently Northeastern native, where instead of going down through the leather or down through the cloth, you catch the nap of a fairly thick material so that you're not putting a lot of downward pressure and causing the surface of the fabric or the surface of the quill work or beadwork to pucker in any way. It's very level and even, and the tension is really nice. And I think that the materials last a little bit longer. There's not abrasion on the inside if you're wearing a fabric. If the stitching doesn't go all the way through to the inside, it may be rubbing against you every day, but the stitching isn't going to break instantaneously, which if you're going to sew down thousands of beads, that's a nice little trick (laughs) (laughs) for sure. And I think that there's, there's other things that are really evocative, that beautiful red coloration, the idea that red connects us to the earth, to our mother earth. That's the ground of the sash. I like the undulating design in the dark color punctuated by the white because it makes it pop. But also there's sort of that philosophical idea in native arts, including in native stamped basketry, of these undulating lines that are the path of life. And the dot sometimes is just the energy and the people and the movement of life along that path. And so there's this idea of movement and journey, and I think a certain amount of balance and harmony in that process. It's, it's what's supposed to happen. Do you think this piece saw a lot of battle? This piece, objectively, this was a very much loved article of gear. You can see where it's stretched. The weaving is stretched. You can see that there's wear lines. You can see places that have more increased wearing off of the dye because it was very lightly dyed in order to kind of get that light colored undulating line at the edge. So they had to sort of cheat the process and not fully saturate the cloth so they didn't ruin those patterns. And so the dye is actually wearing off in sections of the wool yarn. I don't necessarily know as an indigenous man in the time period if you would literally wear your powder horn every day, but I think that there were times when there was a campaign. There was times when you had to move your community to safety, didn't know if you were being pursued. You needed to be ready. You needed to be wearing your powder horn. You needed to have your piece with you. You needed to have your bow. You you needed to have war clubs at the time were also used. Whatever you had in your arsenal was on your person typically because we weren't driving around in (laughs) U-Hauls. It had to be portable and it had to be handy, you know, if you were going to be successful in essentially keeping yourself alive. You know, it was a contest over not just supremacy, but it was a contest over really, really beautiful, really, really rich territory. You know, whether you're talking Wampanoag territory here in Massachusetts or you're talking Southern Maine, Saco River, which I, I suspect is probably the origin area of the sash. I'm curious why make this beautiful, intricate sash to be used in battle where it could be destroyed. I think part of it is maybe cultural differences, even over time in the same people sometimes. Cultural attitudes towards material culture and also sort of having the discipline within yourself, within your family to remake literally everything you need. So people were routinely building a new house. The older one was wearing out. It was getting drafty. The bark was leaking. So you just took everything down. It was entirely biodegradable. You could recycle the poles to something smaller. 
And you had the resources, right? You had the resources when you're hunting animals all the time. You have the fiber to spin the yarn. You have the plants in abundance to dye the yarn. You have the beads you're making or the beads later on that you're trading for. There's enjoyment in the moment, but there isn't necessarily in a culture where utilitarian objects are made beautiful. It's fine to use those. You want them to be used and appreciated and loved that way. We didn't really necessarily make pieces to sort of house in this really careful, isolated fashion, protect it from the elements. I mean, I don't know what my ancestors would say to that phrase, like climate controlled. What's that? That's very <laughs> strange. And that sounds ins- yeah. that sounds like being dead. Um, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> what is that? I don't want that. Um, so like the idea of art without humans to love it, the idea of making something without someone to honor, the, the connection is your relationship with the person. Whether it's it's maybe your son who's going into battle, whether it, your daughter maybe is a, a female sangsqua, a female sachem, and she has to represent the people every day, and she could get shot too. She could get ransomed by jerks, and you know they get their barrels of wampum and they still behead her or something horrible. There's this idea of the connection, honoring the connection, loving that person, and actually thinking of the work of your hands as having wholesome qualities because you're being in some ways creative like the creator. You're creating something wholesome as part of creation. And you're hoping that that confers a little bit of of happiness and good memories and protection, I think, on the person that you're giving it to, whether you're making your, your child's first outfit for dance or you're making your husband's battle armor, basically. How did you go about your research with the eel trap and what did you find? Yeah, the eel traps are just great. You know, I, I never get tired of looking at them. Each one is a little bit different because each artist or fisherman, fisherwoman is a little bit different, right? They have their special material they like to use and their spacing and the weight and the strength. And the ages vary among the ones I think that have survived in collections. So th- there's always cool stuff. There's a range of materials that were used with both the sash and the eel trap. I think also it's the human connection, right? So it's, it's thinking, putting yourself in your ancestors' shoes. Thinking about their day, I've got to replace my gear. The herring are going to be here pretty soon. Okay, let me go out. Let me get some ash. Let me get the cedar bark. I'm going to sit down with my friends and process the cedar bark for all of the traps we're making. You know, I'm going to have some really good food on the fire while I'm doing this work because, you know, that's what I would do nowadays. I know perfectly well my ancestors were no different in that respect. You're going fishing, for God's sakes. You already like the food and you're living on the coast. So, I mean, it's all about food. There's just so much, you know, the the experience of being in the woods at certain times of day, going out at dawn and and getting some cedar, the smell of the swamp. It's very fragrant, almost like the scent of strawberries. It smells Mm. so sweet. I mean, it's it's mucky Mm. and muddy and yeah, you could sink in up to your waist or whatever, but it smells amazing. And at sunset, it's warm and it's soothing and you've worked so hard cutting down trees and hauling them through muck and trying not to you know, falling sinkholes or whatever. Going from tussock to tussock, you have to even walk special just to get through the swamp without sinking in. So you're really tired. But then at the end of the day, you just get to sit down at the base of a tree on a tussock grass and you take out maybe a snack bar in the modern time period and you watch the sunset. And it's really very nice and very satisfying and extremely peaceful. And I don't think that changes over time. Through connecting with the spaces and the materials and the techniques, I think I'm experiencing life the same way people have here in the Northeast for thousands of years. There is a big difference between recapturing 
traditional ecological knowledge and growing up with it. And it's actually really important that I think my generation does as much as they can because we have the opportunity and the time and the access still to collections. Things still survive in collections. Who knows how long they'll be there to recapture a lot of that technology and make it a whole heck of a lot easier on the next generation. Because, <laughs> wow. Meredith, I'm curious, what did Elizabeth's perspective as a Wampanoag artist and researcher bring to this project? Elizabeth has always brought such incredibly rich experience to the table. And I think especially as an artist, she sees materials and dyes and techniques in such a different way than I do as not an artist. She brings such different questions to the table. It's almost like eavesdropping on a conversation between a contemporary artist and the artist who made that historical item. You know, it's this conversation and this learning experience that transcends time and space. As you can hear from Elizabeth, it's such a personal experience when you get to work with descendants of the artists who created these items that are now at the museum. I mean, her connection and interest is clearly not simply academic. It is profoundly personal, and it is core to who she is as a Wampanoag woman. Elizabeth, I'm curious, after doing all this research, after spending so much time with these objects and exploring techniques, what did you come away from all of this feeling or experiencing? I came away from it appreciating the abundant resources that past generations had. I think nowadays, as a modern Native person, on Martha's Vineyard, the tribe owns less than 1% of the land on Martha's Vineyard, right? Mm. And so when you're an artist and literally all of your materials come from the lands you live on and you only have access to a tiny portion and of that portion, some of it is prone to pollution, runoff from the road. There was a dump or there was asbestos on a building or, you know, there's so many concerns as an informed citizen, but especially as an artist, when you're working with your hands and sort of living with the materials and really processing and making materials, you know, you're sanding materials or shaping them and making the chemicals in them airborne potentially or absorbing them through your skin. So it really gave me an appreciation for how important it is to keep the environment clean, to manage your resources and make sure that there's resources for the next generation, because it's not necessarily under these conditions going to happen automatically. I really, really admired the technical expertise. It's taken me so many years to even be in to see the tip of the iceberg for the technology, for knowing the best time to get the dyes, the best mordant to use, the the nicest fiber plants, the best way to process that material and coax out something really beautiful that's very strong and durable and it's long lasting. It takes so much discipline and it takes really paying attention to the seasons because if you snooze, you lose, as they say. So like, you know, if you wait till something's gone by, it's not like you can go back and just go to the store and get those because you missed the, the harvest. You have to be there and be really present, be connected to the tides, be connected to the seasons. If winter's coming early, you've got to be thinking, okay, if we get a lot of snow and it dumps on the milkweed, I'm not getting any milkweed to do my spinning. Can I live with that? If not, then I take a day off work and I get my milkweed. (laughs) You have to get real with yourself about what your needs are and you have to plan on what you're doing. It's not necessarily so simplistic to make something when there's literally three seasons of a year you have to gather just to have all the materials at the same place at the same time. 
So it sounds like you really developed a greater understanding between the connection between culture and environment. I would say that's a good way to put it. Meredith, would you say that working with Elizabeth changed your thinking about the ways in which we as a museum should be looking at objects? And why or why not? And how do you think this experience will influence future projects? I mean, I've been lucky enough to work with Elizabeth at the Peabody, but also at my previous museum. And she always changes the way I think about things and the way I look at things. I mean, her scientific, cultural, and historical knowledge is such a tremendous resource. And again, it's centered from such a a beautiful, personal place. When we're working together, I love talking with her and understanding the manufacture, the creation, the dyes in such a totally different way. And I think her appreciation for the natural world, especially as an artist, really has rubbed off on me a lot. And now when I take walks, when I go to the Arboretum, I'm always looking at things and thinking, I wonder how Indigenous people use this in the past and in the present? How do folks use these plants now? Or, you know, do they use them for dyes? And so I really look at the natural world so much differently. In the past, I think museums didn't see Indigenous people whose items they stewarded as partners or collaborators. And in recent decades, that's really been changing. And I think it's more common now to include community partners in exhibits. I think some of the most successful exhibits I've experienced and learned from really cast their net a little wider and have different perspectives. But I also think centering the interpretation from the home community's perspective is critical. In this online exhibit, we wanted to reflect on these past events, but it was so important for Wampanoag voices like Elizabeth's to provide the interpretation. How Do you think museums like the Peabody that contain these important cultural objects, how do you think they should be working with Native communities and Native artists to highlight those objects? So I think that an interesting movement has happened, I think, across the nation, right, where institutions are taking a look at practices and taking the time to acknowledge whose indigenous land they're situated on. And I think it's sort of the very first orienting step, acknowledging whose land, acknowledging whose territory, who's here, reaching out, creating respectful relationships. There's a variety of ways of sharing knowledge that museums are now involved in, sometimes at the request of indigenous communities who shared generously of their knowledge, materials, techniques, genealogy, history, and the museums are keepers, but not necessarily understanding that there's still a community that would still really value that knowledge. Tribes need that, you know, for a variety of ways and ways that that I can't really articulate fully. There's just these amazing chances to reconnect. I think that the relationships are key. The relationships will be the foundation where you can move forward together in a good way. I think when there's distancing or mistrust, things don't work out well. It's a different sort of depth of knowledge and perception, I think, that we have to contribute to museum collections that are perhaps different from what you have in a ledger book, an accession file, whatever. Thank you both for being here for the podcast. This has been so fun. Thank you so much, Elizabeth, for 
spending time with us today and also for being part of this online exhibition. I mean, I'm so thankful to have you participate in this and share your experiences and your knowledge. And it is so, so appreciated. Thank you for having me. This has been really nice. Today's HMSC Connects podcast was produced by me, Jennifer Berglund, and the Harvard Museums of Science and Culture. Special thanks to Elizabeth James Perry, Meredith Vasta, and the Peabody Museum of Archaeology and Ethnology for their wisdom and expertise. And thank you so much for listening. If you like today's podcast, please subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Podbean, or wherever you get your podcasts. See you in a couple of weeks.